0: Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit
1: AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. Okay, here we go. Well, today we're talking about our own people, our own faith, our own church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And in the previous podcast, we talked about our own experiences, our growing up experiences. Lauren's growing up a Latter day Saint, mine growing up as an Episcopalian, and then converting to the Church of Jesus Christ when I was 19. And so today we're talking about Latter day Saints and their beliefs about family life and marriage and their focus on eternal perspectives eternal marriage eternal families eternal progression eternal perspective and uh, we'll share a number of quotes from latter-day saints who we interviewed and talk about their beliefs
0: we really enjoy diving in deep when we visit with a variety of religious families into not only their practices but also their beliefs the doctrines that they hold most deep and sacred and for Latter-day Saint families, eternal perspective or eternal family, those are things that come up a great deal. And for some of our listeners, a simple way to explore a brief concept might be to say that this is a three-act play. In other words, from an LDS perspective, we lived in a family as a member of God's family before we came to this world to have this life that's sometimes called the mortal experience by Latter-day Saints. When we come into this life, we're a part of a family here. We came from a family there. We're part of a family here. And the ideal hope of many Latter-day Saints and in LES doctrine is that we will, after this life ends, continue to be a part of a family, that we have the opportunity to be sealed that's an LDS term, connected deeply and eternally to our spouse, to our children, and also to our predecessors, our progenitors, and those that come after, as part of a a link, a great chain that spans all three acts of the play. So in all three acts, family is central, to borrow a a Latter-day Saint term. And so it makes family uh, and LDS families a fascinating group to study. In some ways, Dave, this article takes us about 25 years into the past and back to our own roots when we first met up and started researching.
1: Yeah, we were um, back in, oh, what was it, 19, when did you start as an undergraduate working with me? 1994, 1994. okay. Yeah. Back then, I had just come to BYU from University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I had been doing research on parenting and uh, values transmission from one generation to the next in parents and African-American parents, Native American parents, and European-American parents in North Carolina. And when I came here, I began working on fathering and was working with a few colleagues here on a study of children with special needs, various kinds of disabilities. And we worked with a group here, Kids on the Move, that was an early intervention program for kids struggling with various kinds of challenges. And we were focusing on the parent-child relationship, and I was focusing on the father-child relationship. And so you dove right in helping to get some of those interviews, I think you interviewed, what, about 35 fathers? A bunch,
0: yeah. I mean, it was the experience of a lifetime to that point. And one of the things that we found out as we looked at research that had been done was that unfortunately the paternal abandonment rate in special needs context, when a child is born with a severe or even moderate special needs into a family, it puts a lot of strain on the mom, on the dad, on the family as a whole. And many fathers tend to jump ship at rates around uh, 75% with some challenges at least and that was not a story that you and I were interested in telling. And we thought, how about uh, how about if we interview the dads that stay? And I think that was the context, uh, if memory serves me correctly. Let's interview the dads that stay and find out why. What motivated them to? And that that is kind of what led us into the realm of faith.
1: And just, of course, because we were at BYU-Brigham Young University here in Provo, Utah, which is heavily Latter-day Saint. And so it turned out that all but one of the fathers who we interviewed at this uh, Kids on the Move early intervention program, all but one were Latter-day Saint fathers. And so although we didn't ask them any questions about religion, we asked them about their relationship and their challenges and their marriage and their parenting. But most of them talked in quite a bit of detail about their religious experiences, and many of them shared pretty poignant experiences about times that they felt God's comforting power to be with them. They felt powerful experiences of connection with their child. They reported dreams and spiritual experiences where they felt that their child, though struggling with a challenge in this life, would be in the next life fully able to function physically and emotionally and mentally in ways that they were not able to do so here on earth. So that got us going into Latter-day Saint family life, connected with religion. And then, you know, after about five or six years of that, we broadened out and began to focus on folks from many different faith backgrounds. And so here we are, 25 or 30 years later, including Latter-day Saints among our eight different faith groups. And so in this podcast, we'll talk more specifically about Latter-day Saints. And then in others, we'll focus on other faith communities. So maybe we could just mention a couple things about the authorship of this chapter, two young graduate students, you and I, and then a couple of friends of other faiths, Tommy Phillips and Skip, uh, Antonius Skipper. So all of the chapters in this book, uh, all of the eight chapters that focus on different faith communities, involve a fascinating combination of authors, two were young graduate students just starting off in their career, you know, that enthusiasm, that kind of excitement of of newness, two more experienced professionals that are not affiliated with BYU and are not Latter-day Saints. Other than this one, they were all members of uh, that faith community. But since in this case, four of the authors were Latter-day Saints, we invited a couple of authors that Lauren had worked with closely uh, in other states to serve with us. And that was a great experience to have a couple of other folks on this chapter. It really was. In
0: social science, we call it the etic and the emic perspectives, the outsider and the insider. And all of us have blind spots. And there are certain things that you can see when you're inside a house, for example, and yet you don't see the outside. When you're outside, you can see the external walls, the architecture, but you don't see in the same way what takes place inside the home. And instead of picking one view or the other, we tried to steal the best of both worlds and have perspectives from both within and without, not just with this chapter, but with each piece. And I think that's to our benefit and the reader's benefit. really rounds things out nicely.
1: Latter-day Saints, like other faiths, have a set of beliefs, a theology, a doctrine is the word that Latter-day Saints tend to use to describe our core beliefs. And Latter-day Saints have a number of beliefs that are quite similar to most faith communities. Uh, Believing in God or a higher power, believing that prayer, asking, and communing with God is a possibility, believing in a set of sacred texts that serve as guides and uh, and standards, having a weekly or regular religious services where believers gather and sing together, pray together, worship God together. Those kinds of things are fairly universal. Latter-day Saints also have some practices and some doctrines or beliefs that are kind of unique, not necessarily entirely unique, but the emphasis tends to be unique. And for Latter-day Saints, one of those is the idea that human beings are divine in their nature, in their origins, that we're all children, literal children of heavenly parents, uh, heavenly father and heavenly mother that we all lived before we came here, that we all are eternal beings while we're here, that our soul consists of uh, our spirit, our eternal spirit, and our body, and that life after this can be an eternal union of couples and then people across generations, as you mentioned earlier. And so in this podcast, we're going to speak quite a bit and from a number of Latter-day Saints that we interviewed about their beliefs and their practices. So those that we interviewed, that we'll be talking about, included 28 Latter-day Saint families. So 28 married couples and a number of them, we also interviewed their children. So there are 67 total individuals. These folks were from seven different states, California, Delaware, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington. And Wisconsin, uh, surprising to some, we didn't interview any Latter-day Saints in Utah or Idaho or Arizona, where there tends to be a higher concentration of Latter-day Saints. So these folks were in places where they were a a distinct religious minority. The average age of husbands was 47, of wives was 44, and uh, seven of the couples were from uh, racial and ethnic minority families, African-American, Latino, Pacific Islanders. The education ranged from GEDs to PhDs and the years that they were married to each other ranged from 10 years to 37 years with a mean of about 20 years. So in other words, these folks were mostly middle-aged married couples who had been at the marriage and family process for on average 20 years. So they were fairly experienced in their marriage and family. And that was part of our broader research agenda to interview couples that had been married quite a long time and had weathered the initial storms and stress of early marriage and you know were kind of settled into to their marriage. Interestingly, all 28 of the couples that we interviewed mentioned this idea of eternal perspective or eternal families or eternal marriage or eternal progression. That was a theme that literally was universal for these 28 families. And That's been our experience, that if you talk with Latter-day Saints about their thoughts about marriage and family, that concept is going to probably be one of the things that they will emphasize. And we, in our interviews, we had students do coding of those interviews, and in this case, for this particular chapter, we have findings in three main domains— the first domain is life strengths, kind of general ideas about religion that help in life in general. And then the second area is marital strengths. And then the third area is parenting or family strength. So we'll talk about each one of those and uh, read some of our participant quotes. As many of our listeners might be aware, we've talked previously about
0: our effort to work as choir directors instead of diva soloists, so to speak, as researchers. And what we mean in present context by that is that we really want to not just uh, ramble on with all of our own thoughts, but to share excerpts from the interviews that we did in the homes of these wonderful people. And we'll kick off with this strengths-based focus. One of the things that came up repeatedly with our Latter-day Saint interviews was how much faith personally benefited the individuals, the wives, the husbands, and their youth. One mother named Bailey discussed how her sacred beliefs helped her to cope with the passing of her daughter. She told us, when our daughter died, you know the whole thing about the normal steps of grieving you should go through? One, being anger. Well, I was not angry. I had this faith. I I didn't understand it. But both of us had extraordinary peace. That doesn't mean you don't cry. It doesn't mean you don't suffer. But there was this faith. There's this basic faith that it was in God's hands. I don't look at trials and say, why me? That's useless, totally useless. A better question to ask is, what can I learn? Yes. Fascinating to hear this mother talk through that the power of an eternal perspective for her She was not alone. One of my favorite interview excerpts was from a Latino father named Javier, who similarly raised issues of life and death. He was a a convert, Javier was, after his father's passing. But in his interview, he said, The church helps me in my life. After my father died, I was lost. I lost my soul, my life, and I lived through the loss until I found the gospel. Then... With the gospel, I grew up, I I feel that I grow, I change, and I feel the security that the gospel gives me, the refuge that it gives the faith, the hope. I go to the Lord, I talk to him, I pray to him, I cry to him, I have my faith and he supports me. These kinds of life and death wrestles with faith were certainly not unique to our LDS families. But this depth of faith that's related and the way that viewing relationships is potentially eternal was something that recurred quite a bit uh, across interviews.
1: Yeah, it's one of those aspects of family life that is part of what families do is they welcome new members into their family through birth, uh, through marriage, through having their children get married. And now you have a son or daughter-in-law. And then also, of course, we have people leaving the family perhaps through divorce perhaps the most challenging aspect of family life is when a child leaves through death of course we're more familiar with or um, what's the right way to say it we're more ready for our parents to leave us and I have lost both of my parents and Lauren I think both your parents are alive they are and that's The part of family, there are many, many difficult aspects of family life, but losing family members to death is one of the most difficult. I remember soon after I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, I had, I guess, been a member of the church for about a year. I was a student at BYU, and my mom called me one day and told me that my grandfather had passed away. He was the only grandparent that I knew Uh, the others had died either before I was born or one of my grandmothers when I was just three years old. So he was the only grandparent that I knew. And he came to visit us in the summers for weeks, uh, sometimes months at a time. And so he was actually the first person close to me who died in my life. And I remember thinking, oh, and I should say that my mom mentioned that uh, you know, when I asked about a funeral, she said, "Well, we already had a service where we—he uh, was cremated, and we took his ashes in a boat out into the bay and said a little blessing and tossed his ashes into the ocean." And something about that really was hard for me because this person who I knew as such a person of energy and life—and uh, you know, he had cheated death many times in his life—the idea that he was gone was really hard to take. The idea that there would not be any grave or any marker or any funeral that I could go to to see his body or to at least have a funeral where we could send him off, so to speak, that was very difficult. And that night had one of the most sacred experiences of my life where in a dream or whatever it was, I felt uh, the presence of my grandfather. I saw him and he communicated to me in a way that was clear and deep and profound that his spirit was still alive, that, yes, he was uh, no longer uh, on this earth, but that he is a being uh, still lived and that I would see him again. And that, for me, as a 20-year-old newly religious person, was profoundly comforting. And so that is one of those beliefs that Latter-day Saints can draw on when they experience loss is the idea that uh, the spirit is eternal and we will all be resurrected and in a beautiful eternal world, have the opportunity to continue those family associations. With eternal perspective,
0: I had not planned on sharing the following experience, but I resonate deeply with what you said, Dave. I have a grandfather that I, I was fortunate enough to have a wonderful relationship with and who was, uh, I, I'm named after both of my grandfathers, loved this man, one of the finest men I'd, I'd ever known and, and met. My grandmother survived him by about 20 years and with this eternal perspective, one of the things that's sacred within Latter-day Saints religion and tradition is the temple which we'll hear some participants reference a little bit later. We've already referenced that we believe marriages and families can endure forever. And we've mentioned ceilings. And that uh, what we've not mentioned is that those ceilings or those eternal ties that bind are solemnized or, or connected in sacred LDS temples. My wife and I, at this point, we'd only been married for about two or three years were getting ready to leave BYU and to go to the East Coast for some graduate school there for what was gonna be a number of years. And my wife encouraged me to go spend a full weekend with my maternal grandmother, the surviving spouse of my grandpa, who I mentioned earlier. She felt really strongly about this and I'm grateful that I listened, went up and spent a wonderful weekend with my grandma. And she asked, If we could go attend the temple and worship in the temple together, which uh, I was happy to do. And much like your experience with your grandfather, as I was there in the temple with my grandma, I felt a wonderful warmth, a wonderful warmth that was different than anything I'd experienced before and yet was very familiar. It was as we neared the end of our worship time, I thought, finally, I I know that familiar feeling. It's the feeling I felt when I was having a great time with my grandpa, when he was pushing me in the swing, or we were playing badminton together, and hearing his laugh and his good natured banter, the goodness that came from him. And when we returned home I was reflective for a while and I said to my grandma, You know, grandma it's, it's almost like I felt Grandpa with us there in the temple today. And rather than snicker at me or, or say, well, that's silly, she smiled and she says, yes, Lauren, your grandpa's very much at home in the temple, and he loves to spend time there. And it struck me that in addition to worship, part of the reason the temple had come to mean so much to my grandma is that is where she felt like I had that day, the presence of her sweetheart to whom she believed with all her heart. She was sealed to for time and all eternity, as the LDS saying goes. I appreciate you sharing your experience, Dave. That's one from close to home. Uh, One individual uh, couple that I had the chance to interview in Louisiana, I'm going to share an excerpt from them next that, that zeroes in on this eternal perspective. We share an excerpt of this in the article, delightful African-American couple. Both the wife and the husband, in this case, had been divorced previously, and both were converts in mid-adulthood to the LDS faith. The husband, who we'll call Benton, spoke of his experience of warning from two LDS sister missionaries, about an eternal plan for becoming more like God, which he calls the plan of salvation, which in the simplest of terms is that three-act play that we talked about near the beginning of the podcast, that we came from God's family, that we are here as part of an earthly family. And if we learn to love each other here well, we'll have the opportunity to continue to do so in the eternities after this life ends. He talks about, briefly, learning about life for the first time, a life before we came here, which is often called the pre-existence or the pre-mortal realm in LDS doctrine. So Benton told us in his interview, and they came in, the two sister missionaries, and we sat on the floor. At this point, he was in pretty humble economic circumstances, says, I was a single man at that time. He had been through his second divorce. And I looked them in the eyes. They were two sisters. And they told me about the plan of salvation. And I learned about the pre-existence, about being with our Heavenly Father before this world was. And that I was sent to earth to learn, to grow, and to really understand what my purpose really is. Once I learned it and got the point, I made a commitment I knew what they were telling me was right and true. I'll just mention parenthetically that he held
1: tight to this belief that he adopted, lived it out deeply. It's always fun to get to, as we're sharing these quotes from those who we interviewed. You know, we, you and I each did a number of interviews, and uh, a number of your graduate students did a number of other interviews. But it's always fun when we can uh, remember that person that we interviewed and you know the, the setting that they were in and uh, a, little bit, you know, a little bit about them. We'll now mention a quote from a young lady, a 15-year-old Latina girl we'll call Cynthia, who also talked about this idea of sealing and, and the temple. She said, looking at the big picture, God promised us that if we get married in the temple and have a family who's sealed in the temple, and you're sealed to someone, then that is forever. You have somebody who's going to be with you doing it all the way. A companion that you have married in the temple that's going to want to be righteous throughout time and eternity. And just think about an adolescent gal, as all adolescents do, feeling insecurities and going through the identity formation process and wondering about your future wondering if you'll ever find someone that you love, who loves you, that you know, you'll know you spend your life together as a couple, wondering if that will last in this life, wondering if that will last beyond this life. You can feel her sort of sense of hope and optimism of the possibility of finding a young man that she wants to spend her life with, and then through the power of what we call the sealing powers, available in temples, that that relationship can be not just till death do you part, but can be throughout eternity, can last uh, even beyond death. And that sort of idea was mentioned by a number of people. And that reminds me of a piece that we wrote uh, that you let out on on rock and roll and religion (laughs) or something like that. Um, Yeah, we published a little magazine mm -hmm. article, I think it was
0: about Valentine's Day or so, last year, 2020, and we noted some things religious, some things secular, some things social science, and we even drifted off into one of our favorite forays of classic rock. And we noted that there have been at least 17 major artists who have done songs entitled Everlasting Love, a variety of variations on the theme. These are not just covers, but different songs. But everlasting love, eternal love, it seems to be something bone deep in many people. I mean, we found versions rock and roll wise from U2 to the classic alternative rocker Howard Jones to the gospel star C.C. C. Winans, but an array of artists, array of styles singing about the same thing. And it was interesting for us to note that even within our own faith, There are many Latter-day Saints who seem to believe that we have a monopoly on this idea. And as we're aware, there are other religious traditions, particularly within the Abrahamic religious traditions, that have very similar beliefs that relationships can endure. And it doesn't end there. In terms of our friends and family, I'm sure you've had the experience of others expressing similar beliefs to you more casually, Dave.
1: Yeah, our Orthodox Christian friends believe that God actually performs marriages. It's not the priest. It's God that performs the marriage. The priest is really a witness. And so the Orthodox Christian priest that I interviewed, one of the two that I interviewed, said, because whatever God does is forever, if God marries someone, a couple, then we believe it's forever. So they actually use the phrase eternal marriage. Our Jehovah's Witness friends believe that if a Jehovah's Witness couple is married, when um, the second coming or Christ's return occurs, that that couple will be married in what they call the new order of things. And our Muslim friends also believe that there'll be family connections in paradise. And then of course, you know, as you mentioned, because the idea of love lasting forever, of romantic love lasting forever, is so deep in human beings, it's, it's really a pervasive idea. It's the theme of many, many songs of which you talked about. And it's the yearning and the expression of the heart in poetry, in literature. And many couples, as they declare their love for each other, they say things like, I will love you forever, and our love is eternal, and there'll be no end to our love. So this is a very profound human longing. And it was fun to get to talk with people who believe that. In addition to sort of that deep human sense, and they also believed it in the sense that they had been to a temple, had knelt at an altar, had made covenants with each other, and then had been what we call sealed by priesthood power to be married for time and all eternity, as opposed to until death do you part. So now let's transition into the second major domain. We've talked about kind of general life. Now we're going to focus on a couple of marital strengths that these Latter-day Saint couples mentioned. The first one had to do with marital unity, with how an eternal perspective might help couples stay close together in their relationship. Obviously, every marriage, including every Latter-day Saint marriage, has ups and downs and good times and tough times and and times where people feel close, times when they feel distant, times when they feel unity, times when they are experiencing conflict. So here's a couple of quotes that people said about this issue. Someone we'll call Beth said, I think probably one of the foremost keys is believing that we can be together forever, that our marriage is eternal. Another wife we'll call Allie said, Believing in families, being forever is really the core. It's not just I'm in it for me or even I'm in it for a spouse. We are in it forever. It makes marriage so much more important knowing it is forever and not just until the kids leave the house. You know, Dave, we heard a couple great lines here
0: from two mothers. One, Latter-day Saint husband that I interviewed, we don't include this line in the piece because he didn't say it in his interview. But he sent me some writings later on. And you know how it goes with some of these interviews. You build a lasting relationship or at least a connection. And he sent me some of his writings, and I was struck particularly by one line. I didn't try to remember it, but even after reading it once, it sticks in your mind. He said, I love my wife so deeply that I can imagine no heaven without her. And with her, even hell would be tolerable. And even though that has, a, at some level, a distinctly... Latter-day Saint flavor to it, yet that sentiment was shared by many of the families across faith. Remembering these are enduring, happy marriages, the wives and husbands saying, 20 years, 25 years in. Yes, it's been <laughs> it's been a riot, but we love each other, we're crazy about each other. With that said, I think some of our listeners might say, Isn't that painting the picture a bit rosy? And I think the answer probably is. Yes, sometimes. But, uh, you know, one of the next themes that came up is resolving marital conflict.
1: Yeah, we do have a tendency, you and I, Lauren, to be optimistic about religion in general, to be positive because of our own observations, our own research, uh, because of the literature that we've read and our scholarly attempts to understand what's going on with religion and family. You know, most of the research indicates that religion High levels of religious involvement and commitment tend to be quite helpful for couples and for families. And our own experience in life has been mostly positive. And we have seen in our own marriages and in the marriages of those around us, you know, hundreds of couples over over decades, we've seen that when religion is lived in healthy ways, it tends to be a positive thing. However, obviously, every couple, as I said earlier, including every Latter-day Saint couple, experiences challenges and conflicts in marriage. And so this next theme was about what difference does it make when you have the belief that marriage can be eternal? How does that help maybe avoid conflict in marriages or help couples resolve conflicts that they're experiencing or perhaps help them reconcile with each other after they've uh, sort of stopped the hot conflict, so to speak? One husband said, I also strongly believe in the concept of eternal progression. That once I die, there's something that's going to happen to me. We believe that marriage is eternal. That means when I die, I will continually progress with my wife. I think it's one of those things that even in the times that we struggled, that has kept me grounded in the fact that divorce for me was never really an option. When I decided to get married, it was to someone who I felt was worth the work to stay with forever. And this husband's quote illustrated a theme that a a number of people talked about, that because they believed that their marriage would last forever, the conflicts that they were experiencing, often over petty kinds of disagreements, the temptations to throw in the towel, to to say, you know, forget it, I'm out of here, when conflict got heated, the temptation to just sort of disengage from each other and say, you know, it's not worth the pain. It's not worth the stress. I'm just going to kind of disengage from this marriage and maybe I'll focus on my work or our kids or hobbies or entertainment or whatever. And all these things are temptations that all couples experience when there's conflict. And a number of couples talked about the idea that their belief in marriage lasting beyond this life was an encouragement, was a a reminder, was a call for them to hang in there, try to solve problems, try to make their marriage progress, improve, do better, because they weren't thinking of divorce as an option. And this actually reminds me of something that my wife's father mentioned that was quite powerful, and it's a tender experience. He mentioned that... And my father-in-law was a marvelous person, kind, easygoing, very bright person. He was a law professor at BYU. Anyone who knew him loved to be in his presence because he was so even keeled and so generative in how he treated others. But he mentioned to us one time that he himself had never heard the voice of the Lord in his life. And at that time, he was you know, in his 60s, I think. Except for once. And that one time was when he and my mother-in-law were having a conflict, and argument, and he disengaged emotionally. And he rolled over in bed and decided he was done talking about it. And he heard a voice say, continue the conversation. Or something like that. Beautiful. And he was stunned and he turned around and they continued to talk and they were able to work through that issue. And that experience helped him uh, you know when he told us this experience he was about 60, but that experience had happened much earlier in their marriage. And that sense that if you know if, if God's gonna speak to me audibly so to speak you know so clearly that it seemed like it was an audible voice and the one thing that he would tell me is to stay engaged with my wife to continue the conversation with my wife even when I am tired of it and I don't want to continue that made a, a real difference and I observed you know During the many years that I watched my father and my mother-in-law interact with each other, I never heard him yell at her. I never saw him disengage emotionally. uh, He was always willing to work through whatever challenges they were experiencing. And that's um, an indication it was to him, and, and it is for me, because I know him so well, and I trust him so deeply. He was not the kind of person who would say things like that just to say them. He didn't say it to bring any intention to himself. He said that to impress upon those that were listening how much God wants couples to stay working at their relationship, even yeah. in the midst of
0: conflict. I remember, and I don't think this made the article, but one LDS mother that we interviewed said, I think we fight just as much as everybody else, but we have a serious motivation to resolve it. And I, that's another one of those one-liners it's kind of remained with me. And I think we'll, we'll cover from the voice of a youth a little bit later in our podcast, the insight that from the perspective of eternity being right, so to speak, in a given moment, in a given argument, maritally, is so trivial from this so-called eternal perspective. We've talked a little bit here about marital conflict resolution, but we probed and we poked in these interviews, and we asked about parent-child challenges, too. And one father that we'll call Don, on that note, said, "We." talked earlier about the concept of eternal progression and that my wife and I can be together forever. There's the marital piece. In the same aspect, by doing this unifying temple work for our own families and other families, we have the potential of being together as families forever. Not just my wife and I, but my wife and my children, my grandparents, my parents, their parents, and so on and so forth. By accomplishing this work, Through our beliefs, we're able to accomplish that strength, that family unity. What Don doesn't mention here is that for many Latter-day Saint families, they love to go to the temple, at least occasionally, as a family. Marital couples, yes, but it's also a, a sweet experience for parents to be able to go with their children. I remember one experience I had in the Baton Rouge, Louisiana temple, seeing a mother a father and their teenage daughter, all dressed in the the customary temple white, together, interacting. I saw this from a distance. And I don't know that this was hearing the voice of the Lord quite the way that your father-in-law, Ed, shared. But the very firm impression came upon me, saying, "This, this is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Seeing this married couple and their daughter here in this sacred place, doing work that they believe helps others in an eternal way to build their own family is a wonderful
1: thing and a sacred thing. The next theme under the topic of parenting strengths, similar to the one about marital strengths, this one has to do with resolving parent-child conflict. And You mentioned this young lady who we'll call Alicia, a 20-year-old Latina daughter of one of the couples that we interviewed, said, knowing that we are going to be together forever, that we've been sealed as a family, that we are bound forever, that we have that bond, it's like fighting. It seems trivial when you think about it. When someone has a problem, you're more willing to help them because you know that you're going to spend eternity with that person and you're going to love them whether or not you like it. (laughs) And most of the time you do, but it just makes it easier during the hard times to get through it. And that idea that Alicia mentions that even if you don't like a family member, you love them. And there are times in every marriage when you might not like what that person has done. And there are times in many marriages when you might not even like that person, but you love them and love that's connected with commitment that's combined with profound commitment often leads to unity and resolving conflicts that allow you to begin to like that person again and uh, you know one of the things that i profoundly and both my wife and I uh, profoundly enjoy is uh you know when we've had gatherings holiday times is the most common but it could be at other times as well but just you know recently we had A number of gatherings where the family is around the table or in a a living room, sitting and visiting and hearing your adult children who may or may not have liked each other much when they were growing up, who might not have necessarily felt strong connections with that person. But because of those connections that span eternity, you hang in there with people, you try to get to know them, you try to understand them. You try to find areas of common ground. And it was fun to watch our children interact with each other and see that that underlying set of beliefs, you know, the shared history together, allows them to, in adulthood, have meaningful connections that are important to them. And I'm thinking about you know one of our older children, one of our younger children who were you know, enough years apart from each other that they really weren't friends growing up. They didn't have shared experiences, shared friends. They had the same parents and they lived in the same household for a time, but the older ones went off and, and moved out and, and did their thing. And And to watch them reconnect as adults is really uh, enjoyable to see. And that sense of eternal connection is not necessarily an overt thing that we talk about much, but it's kind of there in the background of our family life. Yeah.
0: One of the things that struck me in in connection with family relationships and the melding, the nexus, as we call it, of faith and family, was that many of the Latter-day Saint families we interviewed mentioned family prayer a great deal. In fact, elsewhere, we wrote an entire article on family prayer for our whole sample including Muslim and Jewish and a variety of Christian faiths. Family prayer is powerful. And for many, and for Latter-day Saint families, it actually is drawn from a commandment in part from Jesus himself. There is a line in Latter-day Saint scripture from the Book of Mormon where Jesus tells families, quote, pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, That your wives and your children may be blessed. This family prayer, family gathering idea, recurred as I mentioned. And another unique LDS family practice that was often blended with family prayer was family home evening, a set apart night each week, typically Monday, for spiritual thought or lesson, singing, games, planning, building faith, etc. A Latina mother that we interviewed who I'll call Consuela, said, Family home evening is a meeting we have, the whole family, parents and the children. We have the meeting every week. We sing a hymn. We have a prayer. Someone in the family prepares a short lesson or teaching from the gospel. Sometimes my husband, Roberto, prepares a longer lesson and our older daughter, older in this case meant four years old, retells (laughs) the lesson in her words to her younger sister who is two. She then says, this has had a tremendous impact on her. And by her, I think she meant both the four-year-old and the two-year-old. And so with family prayer, with family home evening, we see things that begin young in family life and can bleed into later adult life, family gatherings like you're talking about. And sometimes the payday, Latter-day Saints told us as parents, was long delayed that some of those family home evenings and family prayers that were more conflict riddled than spirit filled to be sure tended to pay long-term dividends that they didn't see until years even decades later with family gatherings like you mentioned where there's some respect that comes with maturity and time i'm glad that's been your experience dave we've covered a lot of you know just the tip of the iceberg in some ways in terms of excerpts from these families, but uh, what are some discussion points or take-home points that have jumped out at you as we've
1: reflected on 28 families worth of interviews? So you're talking about family home evening reminds me of an article that we published in a scholarly journal this year or last year about LDS family home evening. And we'll probably do an entire podcast on family home evening at one point sharing a number of the quotes that where people talk in great detail about the the good, the bad, and the ugly of family home. Yeah. So we'll probably come back to that in another podcast. At the beginning, you mentioned, Lauren, the idea that when we were talking about Latter-day Saint belief about the eternal nature of our souls, of our spirits, and that we are offspring of eternal parents, uh, heavenly parents, and you talked about Kind of the chain of being that we're all connected to each other. And that chain of being or chain of belonging is probably the deepest idea in Latter day Saint theology. And it does lead to practicalities or pragmatics of family life, of people, as we've talked about, trying to be, trying to hang in there with each other, trying to have a long term perspective, trying to resolve conflicts, trying to forgive each other. Those are kind of the relationship processes and then kind of the religious processes of trying to have regular family prayer, regular family study of uh, scriptures, regular family home evening. And all those things together, You know, the belief system combined with the, kind of the practices allow individuals to feel like they're not alone in this world. They're not going to be alone in the next world. And marriage and family life, although difficult, Stressful, challenging, certainly having ups and downs and good times and bad, but that marriage and family life is worth entering into, and it's worth sticking with. Obviously, there are times and situations where people, for various reasons, are not able to marry, and people who would like to marry are not able to marry, and of course the situations where uh, marriages do end in divorce and should end in divorce if there's abuse unwillingness to treat each other with dignity and respect, then sometimes divorce is necessary. And so I want to mention that my own experience coming into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from another faith and having grown up not knowing any Latter-day Saints, not being in the homes of Latter-day Saints, part of the most strong, unique aspects of the Church that I experienced when I first was coming into the Church was that incredibly strong focus on marriage and family life. And I was invited into the homes of many Latter-day Saints. And then throughout my, you know, now more than 43 years as a Latter-day Saint, I've spent time in hundreds of Latter-day Saint homes. And then, of course, my wife and I have built our own home. There is power in believing that life is not simply the here and the now, that marriage is not simply a convenient social institution. That family relationships are not simply biological human institutions. The idea that God ordained marriage and family and that we can, through sacred ordinances, be united to our families in deep and profound ways in this life and then potentially lasting beyond this life, that often makes a difference in how people approach their relationships here on earth. It's a lovely sentiment, as we talked about, that many human beings have, that a love relationship might be forever. But it's more than just a lovely sentiment. It actually is a very practical idea. It has very pragmatic implications, because if you believe that a relationship is going to last throughout this life and throughout eternity, you're much more likely to be willing to invest in that relationship, to work hard to make that relationship work to hang in there when that relationship is experiencing difficulties, to go get help if your relationship is experiencing serious challenges, to forgive each other when the offenses that always occur in families occur. Those make a real pragmatic difference. So, Dave, we have noted that, you know,
0: during a a certain window, there were 10,000-plus studies on divorce and only 300 that focused on strong marriages and families at 3%. Divorce needs to be studied. We both agree, but does it need to be studied at a 10,000 to 300 ratio? Wouldn't it be great to know more about how folks build strong marriages? We think yes. And so we've zeroed in for 20, 25 years together now, predominantly on strengths. You've listed a number of strengths of this belief of eternal perspective and eternal family. But some, I think of our friend and colleague, a leading psychologist to religion, Annette Mahoney, who'd say, but doesn't imbuing marriage with such sanctity, with such power, with such reverence, set us up for disastrous pain when we don't live up to the ideals, which frankly is just about all the time. If marriage is a, is a beautiful ceramic vase and this idea of eternal perspective is a very tall pedestal upon which we're placing it, when that vase falls, doesn't it shatter in a way that hurts more within an LDS context than it would if we didn't build it up to be so much? I think it's a valid question. I mean, at some level, it's one that Annette's posed implicitly or even explicitly to the two of us. What do you think? I mean, what uh what do we say? Even if I accept what you've said, you know, this is potentially powerful. Is this dark side
1: relevant? Is it fair? What do you think? Yeah, it's uh as we talked about briefly in the chapter, this definitely raises the stakes for marriage and family life for Latter-day Saints. It holds out a potential for heightened unity, heightened feelings of love and commitment and connection. And so if and when it goes well, the potential is perhaps for an expansive, heightened view of life, of marriage, of children, of family life. And that does have some great potential for good. On the other hand, if as is, you said, uh, the case for all of us. It isn't perfect. It isn't idyllic. There are the normal problems that human beings in all marriages have. Isn't it even more disappointing, more painful, more depressing that we're supposed to have this eternal family, this eternal marriage, and here we are feeling very distant from each other. Here we are fighting with each other. Here we are feeling very strong negative feelings, wanting to leave each other, wanting to give up on this relationship. There's no doubt that it does have the potential for that. And so then the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth having an idea that's so such an an ideal that when inevitable failure to live up to that ideal occurs, that then our disappointment is deeper. That's a great question about a lot of things in life. Is it better to just settle, to have low expectations? I mean, yeah. I, I like to crack the joke that uh, the secret to happiness is exactly the same for people playing golf as for couples in marriage, as for parents of teenagers, low expectations, or at least <laughs> re- reasonable expectations. Uh, yeah. Because our expectations definitely affect our sense of well-being. And if our expectations about anything, about ourselves, about our jobs, our families, our bodies, our politics, our automobiles, if our expectations are too high, unrealistically high, we are setting ourselves up for inevitable disappointment. On the other hand, there's that sweet spot where your ideals, your expectations are high, but not unrealistically high. You're not going to settle for anything in your life. You're going to strive to be better than you are. You're going to strive to have as strong a marriage as you can. You're going to strive to be as good of a parent as you can. You're going to strive to make your family as cohesive and joyful and peaceful and positive as you can, My own experience and my own observation have been that it is very important to have high but realistic expectations and then to put forth the effort to try to make those expectations real. And that's across any endeavor in art and music and sport and anything that we do. If we just sort of say, eh, whatever, I'm not going to try because I'll fail. I'm not going to try to learn to play the piano because I won't be a concert pianist right away. I'm not going to try to learn to play this new sport or learn a language or get a degree because I know that I won't be perfect. So why try and fail? And even the idea of why give love a chance? Why get married when you know that the honeymoon won't last and then you're going to be settling into some, you know, medium level marriage? It's not going to be perhaps miserable, but it's not going to be, you know, like your relationship was during courtship and, and the first you know few weeks of marriage. Of course, it's going to settle into the kind of relationship that you see around you, which is almost never perfect or ideal. And so, I mean, that question, and there are people who shut themselves out of love and marriage and long-term commitment because they have been hurt and they don't want to open themselves up to be hurt again. So, yeah. Yeah, This is where a religious perspective can be really powerful and really helpful so that when you are making those efforts, you're not on your own. You're not simply relying upon your own strength. You're drawing from the strength that God and your faith community and your beliefs can bring to you. I'm reminded in listening to what
0: you just shared of a statement that we just read in a class this past week from, I believe, from Charles Schertz, where he says, ideals are like the stars. We never touch them. We never reach them, but they nevertheless are the light that we navigate by. And I think it fits with marital ideals, with religious ideals in ways that you've expressed. I had not planned on us raising this issue, this particular podcast, but One of the most important findings, and I think you and I agree on this from the entire project, and this I believe is true for our Latter-day Saint families, but it's true for our our whole population. We did not ask specific questions about divorce, and nevertheless, about one-fourth Of those that we interviewed, remembering that these are the strongest marriages in their respective faith communities—LDS, Jewish, Muslim, Christian—we were getting the strongest folks that uh, the clergy would refer us to. Even so, twenty-five percent, without you or me or our students asking about divorce, said things like, "If it had not been for our faith." we likely would have divorced. Some said point blank, we would have. There, there's no question. Right, honey? And they would say, yeah, we wouldn't have made it through the first two, the first five, the first seven. One even said the first 10 years without the faith, without that ideal to keep us striving. And yet at year 20, year 25, they're LDS bishops or their uh, Muslim imam, their their rabbi, is telling Dave and Lauren, that's the couple that you want. And 15 years ago, they didn't think they were going to make it, but they somehow held in there. And I think that that is one of the most important messages that we can share with our listeners. Between the stars, the idyllic stars, and the dirt that we're walking on, there's this realm of hope and effort and just refusing to quit where wonderful things can happen. Not perfect, but wonderful things. And it doesn't come without risk. And it doesn't come without some vases getting knocked off the pedestal, but there's hope. And I think for those who've been blessed with with the, the combination of circumstances to weather that storm for seven or 10 or 25 years, And to get to that point where we're starting to taste some of the the fruits of the harvest it's incumbent upon us and we get to do this both as researchers and personally and within our faith communities and with our families to say no it's not guaranteed no it's not perfect but it is worth putting yourself out there it is worth striving for and we're fortunate with uh, with these families we've interviewed to see a bit of a path forward between the earth and the stars saying, here's
1: how oh, we've made it to where we're at. Your um, comment reminds me of the study that was done. You'll probably remember the name of, of the scholars who did it. I, I don't right now, but it was basically a five-year study where at time one, they asked people about marital happiness and marital quality. And then five years later, they asked the same question. And, um, yeah, Linda Wait in Case for Marriage talks about it. And as I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the details of the study were something like of those who at time one indicated that they were very unhappy in their marriage when they were surveyed five years later. And of course, this was people who had who had stayed married when they were surveyed five years later, about 70% of them said that they were now quite happy. In other words, they went from being very unhappy but sticking with it, five years later reported that they were very happy. And that is an indication that uh, almost all marriages go through significant ups and downs. And the tragedy is that in too many cases, couples who are in one of those down times, one of those marital troughs, so to speak, where things are not going well for them, they're not happy. Unfortunately, too many of them give up on that relationship and don't hang in there, and then get to enjoy that future time period where they have resolved those issues or realize that those issues aren't that important or learn to appreciate each other for those differences. And so your thoughts about hanging in there and having hope are empirically validated by that study. Okay. Any final thoughts on this chapter on LDS marriage and family life on eternal perspectives or any other concluding thoughts on uh, Latter-day Saint marriage and family in general? We'll probably do subsequent podcasts where we talk about in more depth about some of these issues that we talked about today. But do you have any final thoughts?
0: One thought that comes to mind in terms of some of the hope, the deeper beliefs, is that even through pain and conflict, inevitable conflict, and and reconciliation, we can get back to a place of atonement, of at-one-ment. That there's a deep belief in LDS doctrine that although there is entropy, it's real. Things tend to go from hot to lukewarm to cold. The world tends to fall apart. We go to bed with combed hair, we wake up and it's a disaster. That with time, things tend to weaken and unravel. That there is a hope in a centropic force that uh, in LDS doctrine is called the atonement of Christ, where things are literally brought again to one. Even the unraveling can be mended, can be healed. It's a wonderful hope that that can happen not just with, for example, The physical body in resurrection or that which is decayed or even in mortal life just tends to break down and become debilitated, can once again be perfect, whole. That relationships can go through that kind of uh, resurrection or rejuvenation is a wonderful thing, I think. And one of Mormonism's 19th century poets and writers W. W. Phelps, I think we choose to end this article by quoting a couplet from a hymn that he wrote called If You Could Hide to Kolob. Interestingly, Kolob is a star. We've talked a little bit about stars and ideals earlier in the podcast. says, there is no end to glory. There is no end to love. There is no end to being. There is no death above. What what a powerful belief it can be that the relationships that we cherish and value most, that we've invested so heavily in, in our case for two and a half decades in marital life for Sandra and for me, for even longer than that for you and Mary, that time is an investment in eternity. It's not time that's lost or that stops when this life ends, but that it's just the end of act two and the beginning of an even better act three to come. Doctors Dave Dalahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.